Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. So today our guests are Kirk Bowman. Hey, Matt. And Jonathan Stark. Hi there. So this is a follow-up from a conversation that we had at DevCon, uh, where we also had Jesse Barnum and Molly Connolly on a panel talking about different billing methods for consulting businesses. And it seemed like that discussion, most of the interest in that discussion was definitely about value-based billing, which is something that, Jonathan, you've been doing for a while. And the reason we're coming together today is, is Kirk, um, you were making, you were basically coming from the position of hourly-based billing is the way to go and don't challenge me, I'm the right, I'm right about this. And now you actually came around and you do a lot of value-based billing on projects. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that was said during the panel that kind of caught my attention was that if you want to increase your income, you got to raise your hourly rate. Because that caught my attention so strongly, I actually started doing some research into it. And as I began to do the research, I'm like, you know, this does make a lot of sense. I've always believed the same thing. If you want to increase your income, you got to raise your hourly rate. I've sort of one of the clients I had back in the day was a law firm, and I watched them raise their rate from 200 an hour to 300 to 350. And I thought, are they, their clients are paying them. They're not questioning it. Why are they that much better than people who are charging less? So I kind of thought that was an acceptable model where you can just sort of bill yourself as the top guy in any market and, and charge whatever rate you can get. It does coincidentally work sometimes. Obviously, I mean, most people doing what we do do bill by the hour. And the reason it works is because more or less a coincidence because what you're billing for, you know, when you're billing by the hour, you're kind of saying, like, for any 60-minute period, I'm worth $200. But I think anybody who's ever billed by the hour knows that when they're working on a project, sometimes they're doing something that is incredibly difficult and then, you know, maybe therefore valuable to the customer. Maybe not. But, um, but other times they're just doing research or they're, they're doing something that, you know, just defining fields endlessly for two hours. You right, know, is right. that really worth $200 an hour for that? Yeah, every hour yeah. is not created equal is what you're saying. I totally agree. Yeah, so the, the situation where, um, you know, you just keep raising your rates, you know, how, how can a particular lawyer charge $200 an hour or $800 an hour, whatever it is? It's because they have clients that are uh, getting enough benefit out of what they're doing. Well, I think it's the judgment and the experience that goes behind every single thing with that hour of billing. So coming from the perspective, I'll I'll take the role of the guy who does hourly because that's mostly what I've done. Although the biggest project that I'm on right now is is a not to exceed value-based project kind of a thing. Um, But for most of my consulting career, I've done it hourly and I've continually kept raising my rates to, um, you know, gradually over the years um, to the point where I basically using it, using it as the mechanism to control how much work I'm doing. Mm. So if I feel like I'm getting overwhelmed with work, I raise rates, and so that I can f- make sure that I'm taking care proper care of the clients that I have the big, by, the by slowing the flow of new new clients. The big assumption there is that every client, every project from every client, is the same level of urgency to the client. Right. If all of a sudden uh, the average customer could make $150,000 a year with a, a simple FileMaker project, you know, a, a contact manager, then you'd, you'd still have too much business if you were charging five or $600 an hour because they'd be getting more of a benefit out of it. The, real, the, the problem with hourly billing to me isn't that it 
can't work. It's that it's completely beside the point. You know, the, the customer isn't buying your time. So if, if a customer hires me for an hour, they don't all of a sudden have an extra hour in their day. They're not buying my hour. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're buying some out, some work output from me, some, some, some perceived value. So they're right. trading their money for something I'm going to do. And how long it takes me to do it is uh, irrelevant or even usually better, the faster the better. You know, the faster the more valuable. Right. So obsessing over the hours is just putting everybody through a bunch of, you know, minutia. It's like if you and I were going to, you know, oh, we've, we've got this great idea to save the world, and then we obsess about what color pen we should write the solution down. You know, the color of the pen has nothing to do with it. The point is we came up with a way to save the world or, or cure cancer or whatever it is. That's the outcome. Obsessing about, you know, invoicing and tracking hours and all that stuff, it just, it just has nothing to do with it. No, I totally understand that, and I agree with you. I also, like you, see that, you know, observe that most people, most consultants, pretty much all attorneys do work this way, and so there's got to be something for it. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way or the good thing. So let's talk about sort of continuing this discussion, working with multiple developers. A lot of people, when we talked at DevCon, said that, oh, yeah, value building could work great if you're a one-person shop, like, for example, me and you, Jonathan. But if you've got a company with a bunch of developers, Kirk, like you, then it's really difficult. Uh, how, how does that work out? Well, I think you first have to consider with value-based billing – what your financial model is, uh, and obviously part of the appeal of value-based billing is it can actually be financially more rewarding for the developer and more rewarding for the client because you're basing success on a totally different framework, if you will. But I think it's easier with employees than, than subcontractors. With an employee, there's got to be some type of financial incentive where as you're succeeding and they're helping you succeed, they're being rewarded. I think with a contractor, it would just simply boil down to if you're going to have a fixed price with the end customer on a value basis, you've got to do the same with the contractor. So you can get into you know different ways of adjusting here and there and trying different things, but I think it ultimately boils down to that. As far as employees, finding the right people is so important. Um, Jim Collins says in his book, Good to Great, that it's more important to get the right people on the bus first and then figure out where the bus is going. And so having the right people, and obviously in our market, finding the right people who have the development talent, the ability to talk to the customer, the ability to assess value, the ability to talk to the customer and draw out of them what is the value, that is a very unique combination. And so I've been fortunate that I've got some really good people that I'm working with. I could not do this without some really exceptional people. I think it starts there. So you would say then that maybe the bar is higher, considerably higher from what you're saying, to hire an employee if you're going to be billing value-based than if you'd um, to have that same work be done by an hourly-based type person? I would think so. I mean, ultimately, it depends on how much responsibility you're turning over to the person. Um, I've... 
I prefer to work with people in kind of a hands-off style of management. We get together once a week. We review our projects. We talk about things, and then everybody works, and we draw each other in as we need to. But we're not micromanaging or checking in with a project manager you know, every day or every other day. Um, obviously, if you had somebody who's learning, who's, who's coming in at, a, at you know, entry level or junior level position, if you've got more supervision built into that, you can probably make it work. But you've got to make sure your cost structure is effective for that. Right. You can't be paying, you know, top notch developer rates to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing or who can't think outside the box to kind of put that in a framework. Because like Jonathan says, with a value base, all of a sudden the emphasis for the developer is I need to get this done and I need to get it done fast it shifts your focus because now you're not worried about how many hours you're going to bill. You're worried about let's get this done so we can be successful and move on. Right. So Jonathan, why have you not added employees to your organization? I'm just not interested in managing people. I I did it at um, the Moyer group for years and it's, I I just prefer to program. And uh, I mean, I worked with great people there. I had a great time doing it, but you just end up doing a lot of email and reporting um, I don't know. Just, just not my thing. I think I'd actually have to answer that question the exact same way. I really like being. I mean, having worked at Pre One for a lot of years, I didn't really do a lot of management there. I really focused on the coding. But uh, I definitely, I'm happiest when I'm when I'm writing scripts and and actually solving problems with the technology as opposed to. Uh, even though even though a lot of the work actually is with people, is with the client right at my desk or whatever, it's different than managing other people to do the same work where you have to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to have them do kind of thing? How, right. how, how's your take on that, Kirk? As far as managing people, working with them? Yeah, versus doing the work yourself. How did that transition go for you? Well, I've, I've been on a quest for the last seven or eight years to find a partner in the business um, and actually had gone through trying to merge with a couple other FileMaker shops and those never did pan out. Um, but I enjoy working with a team. I don't enjoy working in isolation. Um, now, obviously, you can get working with a team, still be a sole proprietor, but I really enjoy having several people uh, in the same boat, rowing the same way. There's just a camaraderie. Um, we can do things that, that at least I myself as one person couldn't do, do larger projects, get into more uh, cool technologies. It's also just fun to, you know, every Monday we get together and talk about what everybody's doing. And it's it's very common during those Monday status meetings for somebody to go, hey, I did this this week. This is cool. Or, hey, I'm going to send you all a link to this. So there's just it, it deals with growth. I feel like I grow better in a team environment, and part of it's just that's what I want. So that's how I'm shaping my business. Now, another really big draw with this is when we were talking at DevCon, and the thing that, that uh, I was really trying to move towards is business and is not just about business, right? We're, we're actually in this to live our lives. And so, Jonathan, you've written books. Um, I travel a lot in an RV. Uh, Kirk, was there some of those motivations to just live your life better and be a, a better human on the planet involved in the in the move to value based or I think it would enhance my ability to do that. I mean the first thing for me is my family. Um, you know, I've got a wife and two kids and so trying to get in a position where grow the business, increase our income and still be able to maintain, you know, a reasonable amount of work. 
Uh, and of course, I do what I do because I love to do it. So I'm not one of these guys who couldn't work. But the the ability to basically you know maintain where we are and grow it without you know having to sacrifice my commitment to my family that's that's huge. Right. So working less was maybe a goal, maybe not a goal. Just basically just being more efficient was what it was about for you. Then sounds like. Yeah, it, it was, but the, the whole thing with value based is it just you're measuring what you're doing differently and you're you're valuing it differently, um, and it just makes sense to me. So I I would have to say my move to value based wasn't motivated by necessarily a, a supporting a lifestyle or a change of lifestyle. It just seemed to make sense. Okay. So one of, one of the goals I kind of had. Uh, when depending upon the time of year when the weather's nice and I want to be traveling, I like working 20, 30 hours a week. Jonathan, I kind of guessed when we were talking at DevCon that that might be a goal you had too, but it sounds like you like the 50, 60 hour a week better. No, I mean, I don't really draw a distinction between work and the rest of my life. So, uh, you know, I'm able to be really picky about my customers and I work with people I really like and I just don't, it doesn't, feel like work, I guess. So I, I don't even know how many hours I would say I work a week. You work you know? out of your house or do you have an office? No, my house. Okay. I guess that's the big distinction. I mean, I, I love my work, but I actually leave the house and go to a place and do it. So mm-hmm. I can, I know how long I'm not at home. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of the easy distinction I have. But if I worked at home, I think I'd probably be in the same position as you. Just to give you an idea, like today I've got to do you know, I'm doing a, doing a podcast. I'm uh, doing final edits for a book. I'm doing some project work. I have to turn in an article to advisor. You know, I've got a list of bunch bunch of different things. Uh, I've got a blog post that's due today. You know, so there's a lot of different things that definitely are work-related, but none of them feel like work. Right. I don't even know how to measure it which I guess just shows you how far over the cliff I am. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about switching to a value-based project. Uh, you had indicated before we started recording that one of the ones that you're doing, um, Kirk, was actually in the middle of a RFP stage. So you'd already started talking to the customer and presumably even already started talking about pricing or hours or something like that, and then changed to a value-based quote before you got the job or I don't know how that ended. How, talk about that process. Would you recommend that? Well, it, it's definitely a challenge. Um, you know, the whole approach to value-based billing, uh, in, there are some things that you want to set up with the customer from the get-go. Number one, you want to be talking to the true buyer, the true economic buyer, the person who's actually got the ability to sign the check or ask purchasing, submit the purchase order, whatever the case may be. You also, it's very, very helpful if the initial conversation with the customer, you are shifting the conversation to that value-based discussion. Um, this particular project that I'm working on right now, it was a situation where we had done the needs analysis stage, and before we submitted the proposal to the customer, I decided that I felt like it would be best to do this on a value-based approach rather than an hourly approach. Um, the difficulty was I really hadn't had that clear conversation with the customer and so I was trying to introduce that conversation later in the process and that found I found that that was challenging and it is proved to be true that if I had done it from the beginning probably wouldn't have had to answer some questions that 
we went through in the negotiation process because there was a shift. And I, I made the shift because I honestly thought it was best for the customer as well as best for us. I think the customer is in a situation where they need to know what it's going to cost up front, and they need to know I'm going to be here to deliver it, and I'm going to say, yes, that's the price, and even if you know I miss the mark, I'm going to eat it. They needed to know that. At the same time, it gives us the ability. I, I just love having the pressure off of having to worry, not having to worry about how many hours. Mm-hmm. It's it's just nice to say, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Here's what it's worth, and so that's where we base our the the fees for the project. Cool. Actually, didn't you? Weren't you telling me that it, uh, Kirk? This is addressed to Kirk. Uh, weren't you saying something about the the difference in uh, feeling, the different feeling that you got when you first went to um, to a value based model with a, a fresh customer? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a totally different mindset. I'm I'm not worried about the details of it. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The customers, just because they may have worked with other developers before, and it's always focused on the deliverables. And granted, deliverables do have some weight. We got to know what it is we're building and what it's supposed to do. But trying to move the conversation up to a higher level, why are you doing this? What value does it have to you? Conversation with a, with a prospective customer right now. Um, basically, they have an external vendor that provides all the things that they're asking us to do. And I had to ask the question, why do you want to bring that back in-house? And it actually took a little bit of digging to, to, to figure that out. But going that direction, not so as focused on how many screens, how many scripts, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So what are the criteria for how to determine when to do a value-based versus not for a given project? It's interesting because I'll, I'll have arrangements with customers where I'm more on a retainer basis, so you can sort of pick my brain or have me do sample code or just bounce ideas off me, and I'll build that out at, you know, a, basically in a monthly basis, no longer, you know, if, for, if you want to set up a 12-month arrangement, then it's, you know, cheaper or whatever, but it's, it's kind of like hourly, but stretched out to like a very much longer term, you know, months, you know, half a year, a year. But what's going on there is that there's no specific outcome. They just want access to my brain for uh, random questions. They don't know, you know, what's going to come up. They don't know what they're going to need to know. They just have a feeling that they're going to need to know it, and I might be the person who could tell it to them. Right, so it goes back to judgment and experience. Um, to me, the two judgment, experience, and speed are what I would guess the three most important things. Why you would be paying someone for hourly or for something like that? Not, and I guess the the place you're going with this is, what are the criteria that's different from that? You know, how do you define something that actually absolutely is value based? Right, and so so what happens is when uh, an arrangement like that, uh, just a pure retainer arrangement like that, is going on, it's immediately obvious when something comes up to, to both the customer and myself. It's immediately obvious when something outside of that scope comes up, and that's a project. Because all of a sudden they say, oh, you know what? Um, it would be great if we had this thing that did this that would allow us to do you know, X, Y, and Z, which is completely different than the normal questions that you get, which are like, uh, you know, do you think you, we should go with PHP or Perl or Lasso or you know, things, like, uh, things like that? Should we oh, use- yeah, Lasso, definitely. <laughs> 
There are some people I know who are really good who work with Lasso, so I can't diss it too much, you know. (laughs) You can leave that to me. Okay. (laughs) Since you wrote Uh, the book on PHP and everything, you know. Yeah, exactly. I just take a stand somewhere. But the point is that it's immediately obvious to everyone when you have a project. A a project, if I was going to define it, I would say that it's it's a collaborative effort between the two parties that's going to take a fair amount of time and it's going to have a defined outcome which is different than just being able to bounce questions off of someone, you know, periodically. Right. Actually, I'd call that a software project. You know, you're basically, you're building a piece of software as opposed to editing something that exists or, you know, weighing in on the best ways to do certain things or advising on user interface changes or consolidation or something like that. I mean, I think it applies to other professional services, you know, project-based professional services, Mm -hmm. but we're talking about software here. So, you know, it's like a custom software project. Uh, but it could be an integration. It could be a modification to an existing package. It depends. Um, but the, the difference is that the customer knows. The dis- difference is there's like a map. There's a road map in everybody's mind immediately when you start talking about it. You know, you can see this series of steps. You might not maybe know what exactly what path you're going to take or what the series of steps is. But you can see that there is a path. You can see a you know, sort of hazy destination off in the, in the, uh, down the road. And it's... That is when a value base makes sense because you've got this sort of partnership that has to take place. It's a collaboration. It's not the software developer, you know, getting the spec and then going to the basement and delivering right. it months later. That's not how it works. Right. Yeah, so, the collaborate. I totally get that as well. And it actually kind of um, rang when you said something earlier about when the customer buys an hour of your time, it's not like they're getting an hour of their life. (laughs) In fact, it's kind of on a collaborative project. When they hire you, they're actually committing to spend a whole bunch of time with you because they are the the expert to understand exactly what they want. It's going to take a lot of their time to get the project to to successful fruition, I I always think. Mm. Yeah, and as a sort of side note to that, it's the same reason that I won't generally won't commit to deadlines because I don't really have any control over the timeline of a project, you know, because it's a collaboration. There's, I'll usually, the best you'll ever get out of me is something like, well, we can't do it any faster than a month. There's no way that this could be completed faster than a month, but how long it ultimately takes, it could depend on factors that are out of my control, so I'm not going to commit to a, a deadline. Right. Well, but, I, I want to so, steal some of that mojo. That's... <laughs> But when you're billing by by value, it's everybody's best interest to get it over with as quickly as possible. So it solves itself. Everybody wants to get it done quickly, but also with very high quality. So you want to work fast and perfect. Right. Since I'm not getting paid by the hour, I don't want to be getting these support phone calls, you know, every, you know, bug reports two years down the road. I want it to be perfect. I want it to be bulletproof. And I want to finish it fast. And the customer wants the same thing. That's the beauty of value-based is like everybody's incentive is pointing in the same direction. Yeah, incentives are a huge part of it. How's that worked out for you, Kirk? Well, maybe before we get to that, how many projects, this has only been a few months now, have you finished some value-based projects since you started? We are close to finishing a couple. Uh, As I mentioned, you know, the cycle on this, I'm probably about 90 days into it. And probably the first half of that was just spent on me doing research, talking about it with Jonathan and others, just really going, can I really internalize this? Because value-based billing on the surface could appear to be, well, hey, I'm going to increase 
you know, my revenue. And it does have that component, but if you can't align with it philosophically, if you really can't put the focus on, like Jonathan says, you know, doing it fast and doing it, I don't know if I use the word perfect, but you want your customers extremely satisfied. Not that somebody who's doing hourly doesn't, but there's just a, a greater emphasis on that, I think, with value-based billing, at least in my mind, in my experience thus far. So three months into it, we've got a couple projects that are going that way. Um, we've got some larger projects that we're hopeful are going to start. So check with me in six months, nine months, 12 months. My goal is 12 months from now that everything we'll be doing will be value-based because I really do truly believe we're going to be better at what we do, our customers are going to be happier, and we're going to be more profitable. The business is going to be healthier financially. That made me think of two things that I'd like to point out. Uh, one is that it doesn't necessarily allow people to increase their rates. What it does is it detaches um, your your revenue from the amount of hours in the day. So in order to, you know, so that could decrease your your uh, revenue if your clients, if the clients that you have, uh, you know, aren't getting as much value out of the projects that you're doing for them as you think they should be. So in other words, uh, if I was getting a, a bunch of clients who were, you know, just mom and pop, uh, used bookstores that didn't really stand to benefit from the 200 hours I was going to have to put into the project to build them some kind of catalog system, uh, then you know obviously they're not going to pay me 200 hours times $200, which is what my hourly rate would be. You know, So it doesn't give you license. What I'm trying to say is it doesn't give you license to just charge a million dollars for everything. It just disconnects your revenue from the number of hours in a day. Right. So, that, you know, you can get, uh, if you do get, the, see, the, the goal is then to get customers who stand to wildly benefit from what you're going to do for them. And then they're not going to care about the hours. and They're not going to care how long it takes you to do it. They're gonna, in fact, they're going to hope you can get it done as fast as possible, faster than, than someone who's doing it hourly. Right, right. The other thing is, if you disconnect the revenue from the hours in the day, and you do get these big customers, you can devote a lot, you're going to have a lot more discretionary time on your hands that you can devote to uh, people who maybe don't have the money to hire you and, you know, pro bono, pro bono work or nonprofit type stuff because all of a sudden you have, potentially have free time on your hands, you know, but your needs have been met. Right, so that actually goes um, a lot to, to feeling better about the work that you do. At I least think. that's the way, that's how that worked out for me anyway, in that same scenario. Is that, is that why you do that as well? Uh, me? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, yeah, actually, I mean, it's, it's one of the, it's, I should say it's on my list. I can't say that, uh, I've done an actual software project for a nonprofit, but I do spend a lot of time giving advice to, um, especially local companies in Providence, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I do spend a lot of time giving sort of free advice and counseling to smaller, you know, people who are getting started and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'd like to do more of that, though. I, I should really do more of that. I, I like it a lot, so it's a good thing. I like that, too. I guess I kind of joke about it because uh, a couple of years ago, one of the largest projects that I had was working for an auto parts place. And 
building out this code to make it efficient for them to sell, uh, you know, illegally bright headlights for your car and stuff like that. <laughs> and there, I didn't, you know, it's really good. It's fun. The guy, the, the client is a hoot and it was fun. But I didn't really feel good about the contribution to society aspect of it. Yeah. And so then I started working on this public health project where the where the outcome of connecting these other databases together potentially saves lives and prevents the spread of infectious disease yeah. in, in a measurable way. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I feel really good about that. Um, and definitely I'm, I'm giving up a significant income possibility, at, the, at least in the early stages, uh, and not caring because I feel so much better about the contribution. Mm. So I like I really like um, being in that position. I think that's just maybe goes along with being a developer for a really long time and being able to finally call the shots. Kirk, how, what's your path for stuff like that? Here we are, three guys talking about feelings again, but <laughs> and this is definitely not a very technical thing. But I think it's just really good to people don't really get this stuff out in the open. So I think it's kind of good to talk about the um, the bigger picture stuff. Well, it's interesting to hear you and Jonathan talking about how you know I want to work on things that both have a monetary benefit and a, you know, a public benefit. Um, I'm involved in charity and those kind of things, but I really separate that from my business. It's just my choice. I, when I'm doing my business, I am doing that. I'm in business. I'm in business to sell something and get a return on that. When I'm giving, I kind of detach that a little bit. I do that personally. I do that through my church. I do it through other ways. I found personally I don't enjoy doing what I do for business for free. Mm -hmm. I just don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's the way I'm wired. I can't separate that and go, I'm going to do database for this guy for money and this guy for free. It just doesn't work for me. I have other talents that I enjoy using but that are not part of my business per se. And so that's where that's where I give in those areas. So it's just a difference in the way I'm wired. So I just don't – granted, I want to do fun projects. In fact, I turned down a project last week because, quite frankly, the product – uh, was not something I wanted to be involved with. I was asking myself, I go, how would I would I ever give this customer if we're successful? Would I ever use them referrals? Like, no, because I don't want somebody knowing that I worked with that type of product. So I just said no. But it just didn't factor in when I'm choosing clients on a pro bono basis. I don't. I know it, that's common in a lot of services, but it's just not the way I'm wired. Yeah, that's fair. I can see that. It it feels a lot different. It's not the same thing. Yeah, I have to agree. Actually, when, and the work that I do uh, lately, the stuff that I've been feeling good about, the contribution aspect, isn't doing work for free. It's just selecting specific clients instead of other clients and, and charging a lower rate for that. You know, But I have, in the position, done databases for free, and I totally understand what you're saying. It doesn't feel the same. It's not, um, it's not as fun. Or just as, as, I don't know, that's not maybe the right way to put it. It doesn't feel right when you're when you're doing pro bono work for the stuff that you normally do and charge for. Yeah, there's something weird the, about it. Yeah, the, the, in my experience, the for doing a straight up software project for free for someone, you tend to get less buy-in from the client, and there's less commitment to the project, and they respect your time a lot less. Right, because yeah, they're not paying for it. Yeah, so it's a straight up software project is kind of painful to do for free. Um, but <clears throat> the stuff I was talking about is more advisory type things where yeah. you, you just sort of freely let people pick your brain and, uh, or maybe put them in contact with people they should be in contact with, that kind of thing. Yeah, but that's totally, I, yeah, that's totally different. I agree with Kurt that it, it's brutal. <laughs> it can be brutal. 
to work on a software project for free. Yeah, the the whole advisory thing with Jonathan, I totally agree on that. I mean, what I find is I wind up being able to take what I've learned and where I've grown in my business and bring that to apply to other organizations, you know, in that sense. But in in those instances, I'm not touching a lick of software. They're going, hey, we're looking at our budget for this year, and here's where we've allocated it. Do you think this looks good? You know, it's kind of like a, almost, I hate to say a board of directors position, but again, it's just more of that bringing a wisdom and experience to a situation, not bringing myself as a software developer. Right. Yep. I get that. So, uh, where have you guys gotten inspiration to learn more about value-based billing? Mm. Like, I know Alan Weiss has written a lot of books on this, and I think, Jonathan, you've worked with him, haven't you? Yes, that's true. Um, I, think his, uh, I think his books are really good. It's, I've found that it's very difficult to... Uh, you, you really can't apply his principles directly to software consulting. He's a management consultant. And it's it, you just can't do it verbatim for a software project. Uh, the the uh, example I most often point to is that he's super anti-deliverables. Don't talk about deliverables. If you're talking about deliverables, you're talking about the wrong thing. And you just can't do a software project without talking about deliverables. Uh, but you need to be aware of the fact that when you're talking about the deliverables, deliverables, you need to keep them super high level, and that the point of putting of, of discussing them at all really is to build, uh, is to reassure the client that you heard what they said. So, uh, to give you get a little more specific, when I do a quote for someone, uh, usually we've already had a conversation. Or, well, we've obviously already had a conversation, but we've had a conversation and we've talked about. Um, you know, they usually start out by telling me exactly what they want me to do or what they think they need done. Uh, and then I'll say, okay, that sounds great. Good information. Let's back it up a little bit and tell me more about your company, your goals. What are you trying to accomplish here? Um, because in my mind, it's, it's fairly likely that the solution they've picked, you know, might not be the, the best solution. At least I want to reassure myself that the, the solution that we're going to do is the best one for, you know, they're uh, holistically across their company. So, okay. So, uh, when it comes time to give them a quote, if I, whenever I didn't put the specific deliverables that were agreed upon between the two of us during that conversation, whenever I left those out of the quote, 100% of the time they would, they would say, Oh, this, this seems good, but are we going to get X, Y, and Z, you know, that we had talked about on the phone, you know, and, and so I just find my, you just have to put them in, uh, which is a sort of anti-wise philosophy. Uh, but it turns out that it never matters because uh, it's really just a reassurance type of thing because ultimately it's actually very common that the things that I'll list out in the uh, proposal aren't, aren't necessarily what actually get built ultimately, but the, the ultimate goal does get uh, addressed and the problem does get solved. Whatever the goal that they were trying to achieve gets achieved and whether or not, you know, X, Y, and Z that was listed in the quote actually happened, no one cares. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, so it's one of the, that's that's just one example that uh, I've had to... Yeah, I have definitely observed that the the project that people need is not the thing that they think they need when they start it. It yeah, only really ever emerges as you start to build it. Right. 
which is why like the, the, the waterfall method where you do the entire needs analysis up front, disappear to a corner and build it and, and then display it at the end. I've never seen that actually produce a product that's, that's the actual right project solution. Right, for a software project. Product. Right, for a software yeah. product. Right, but when, actually when we were uh, at DevCon and Jesse talked about um, a plug-in project, that was, I was really interested to hear that because I, I don't do plug-ins, but that is a perfect example of, of a situation where the, the client can say we needed to do these five things and then you, know, you can go in your basement and make it do those five things and there right. you go. So yeah, that, I think 360 Works is a little especially good at that too, because yeah. we've hired. When I was at Pre One, we hired plugin developers to write plugins for us, and it didn't work that way. <laughs> you know, we we told them the features, and they'd get them out there, and it did ninety eight percent of what it was supposed to do. But if it didn't do one hundred percent, it wasn't really useful. So that it never really ended up sort of working. That was a little bit different because it was creating it was creating type to match what Quark or InDesign would do, yeah. um, which was really hard to do. So, but anyway. Actually, I think the difference to me, I, I've thought about it, not a lot, but periodically since, you know, since DevCon. And the, the main thing that I see as a difference between a plug-in software project and what I normally do is that the plug-in doesn't really have a user interface, so, which, which to me is where um, a, lot of the, a lot of the unknowns come in. When you're building a user interface, it's a much more complicated thing than building an API, which is essentially what a plugin is. If I was just going to build an API or just a web service for someone, it would be a lot easier than uh, you know, building something that users are going to interact with. Because the, the interaction design part is where all of the, you know, all, all, you know, the best laid plans just doesn't work until you can actually, until people are actually using it. And sometimes even when they test it, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden it goes into production, and they're like, oh, wait a second, I can't do my job. This is going to be like this. Yeah. Yeah, that so, makes sense. I agree with you. Inter- user interface is huge. I, I emphasize that a lot because a professional interface makes it feel like a real program and not a uh, hacked-together database. Mm, yep. And, oh, and, and that reminds me of another thing that isn't, that I wouldn't, necessarily put under a value-based, I probably wouldn't put under a value-based mm-hmm. a model, which is if you were building a product for retail, that isn't the same thing. Hmm. So it, to me, that's just not, it's not the same thing. Even if it's a vertical market kind of a thing? No, I mean, I, I think it needs to be, I think something like that needs to be approached more from the standpoint of a, um, a waterfall method. Otherwise, you're never going to finish it. So because you can't work with your end users. You know what I mean? The, 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 the typical project for me is like a custom software project where I'm building uh, an intranet for some company, you know, and, and maybe their vendors and their customers. Mm-hmm. So I can actually work with the users and we can do this sort of agile process where we go back and forth and we turn it into something that uh, works great for everyone, achieves everybody's goals, makes everybody happy, and, and uh, you know, they can all go home at 5 o'clock every day. But if you're building something like a shrink wrap, you know, that's going to be in the Apple store or, or something like that, you know, that you're going to sell, I think it gets a little, I think it's, it's definitely a different thing. I think everyone would agree there. And I think that the level of interface polish has to be much higher. And you can't deal directly with your end users. You can only sort of 
maybe have some beta testers or whatever, but it's just totally not the same thing. You have to define your scope because if you don't, they're, even your beta testers will drag your scope all over the place. There's just no, and, and that's not necessarily a problem for the developer in terms of, a, in terms of eating up all of this time. It's just going to make a crappy product. Yeah, I guess I've, I've developed shrink wrap applications like that that had a couple thousand users. And I've also developed vertical market applications, obviously, pre-1 and others since then. Um, I don't know that if I agree with you on that, though. I think actually a lot of the things, because really what you are trying to do when you're building a vertical market database is you're trying to build a product that creates value for the customer who buys it. So like at, at pre-1, when we built Smart Publisher, we were really trying to solve specific uh, ad scheduling and accounting problems for a customer. And we did directly work with a lot of customers. And we did definitely use a lot of, you know, real specific small projects for features to build in so that we every year when we had a release, it had a lot of features in there. It wasn't, you know, so I guess there was some a little bit of waterfall stuff like that. We had one big release a year. But really, the process of getting there was very agile. Um, and I did feel like we had a lot of that, the same kind of collaborative work that you get in a consulting project. But I don't know, that's that's kind of a, a weird... Um, there's not a lot of places in the FileMaker world that develop like uh, like Pre-1. There's you know, multiple developers, uh, it's kind of a scenario. But anyway, that definitely did feel like a lo- that to me when I was there. Yeah, I think that, I think a vertical is kind of like a, a middle ground between a shrink wrap and a pure custom yep. project. So... And you kind of just you kind of just illustrated that you know there's some collaboration and there's some sort of waterfall, but I think I, I was talking about a shrink wrap specifically. You know, if you were going to make, I mean, a, a book to me is kind of like a shrink wrap. You know, if you write a book, it's just going to be in the store and there's no, but customization is not an option. Yeah, that's true. It's just the book, and I can't write a book and then price it based on how much value each individual reader might potentially get out of it. You know, it's it's not like that. It's just a completely different thing. Yeah, that's true. That that when you have a shrink wrap or a book, that's where you're getting more into what the market will bear type of argument, as opposed to you know how much value is someone going to get out of it. It's just it's just not convenient for me to price it that way. Right. I suppose you could say, oh well, you know, there's three people in the world are going to get millions of dollars of value out of this book, so I'm going to price it at at a hundred thousand dollars and hope that those three people find it. It, it's just a totally different dynamic. You know, you're, it's a vol- you're looking for a volume sale there. You're not looking for these sort of boutique-y one-off. Right. Sort of take a lesson from the app store, you know, create an app for a dollar, and, and then millions of people buy it, as opposed to sell it for $100,000 and nobody buys it, you know? Yeah, exactly. There's just, it's just the collaboration element is, is just, the dynamic is completely different. Except that one app on the App Store that was a thousand dollars. I think seven people did buy that. Remember that one? Yeah, nine nine nine. Actually, the, the it does nothing application. Yeah. I'm a sucker. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, are there books you'd recommend from Alan Weiss or anybody else? Uh, yeah, the Value Based Fees book is great. Um, like I said, I don't think you can apply it verbatim to uh, what we do in a typical custom software project, but there's a ton of great uh, information in there. Well, I, I reread it probably once a year. Hmm. Yeah, so he's got some su- other ones like Million Dollar Consulting and Getting Started in Consulting. 
That's mm-hmm. the one I want. <laughs> yeah, value-based fees is the, I, my favorite. They're That's all pretty good. Some of them are more specific to what he does. Um, I did read Getting Started in Consulting way back when, but it's not the kind of thing you need to reread. Just to piggyback on what Jonathan just said, I would start with his Getting Started in Consulting book. Um, trying to remember, there's like three chapters in the middle, like five, six, and seven or something like that, that kind of talk about the sales cycle and the proposal cycle and, and how to do value-based. Um, and then then if you like that, if you want to go more in-depth, go to the Value-Based Fees book. Part of that's just um, the Value-Based Fees book is a little hard to come by, and, and it's a hardback. But if you've been hardcore hourly billing as I have been for so long, it is really a paradigm shift. And so part of just reading this is to help shift your paradigm. Reading intro to consulting, Weiss doesn't just talk about his approach to value-based billing. He talks about his approach to marketing and other things. So you kind of get a flavor for who he is and kind of how he approaches things. And it's very good to have kind of that general flavor of Alan so that when you go to value-based fees, you understand why you're digging in more. It's not just, uh, you know, kind of reading the preface and then, you know, reading, you know, the condensed version, the unabridged version, although it does feel that way. But it's just shifting your mindset. For people, maybe for others who approach this, it would be an easier transition. But for me, it was really something I had to work at mentally. You know, I knew I knew in one degree intellectually this was a good move for both me and my customers. But to make that shift, it's so easy to fall into those old habits. And a lot of what I'm still working on is when I have to work a little harder at the sale or at the proposal or whatever the, pro- the, the part of the process is, not shifting back into kind of those, those old ways, those old ruts, you know, the kind of that old thing about a habit takes 21, do something 21 days to make it a habit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a long process. So that's why, you know, I've been, as people have asked me about it, you know, as they found out that I've kind of made this switch, I'm like, well, it's a work in process. Here's where I'm at right now. Check with me in three months and another three months and we'll see. But if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it 100% so that if a year from now I go, it didn't work, I can go, yeah, I tried it for 12 months, it didn't work, and here's why. So it's like a software project that's always three months away from completion? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just like any other part of business, right? You, you learn as you grow, right? You want to do a PHP project. Well, you pick up Jonathan's book, you read it, you do your first. Okay, you know, had to put in a lot of extra time on that, just kind of close it up. The next one, not so much. It's the same kind of thing. But the other thing I'd mentioned, and this is kind of going off on a separate tangent with the value-based billing is I'm not so worried about the needs analysis phase. In fact, I, I, in some situations, I would still charge for a, for a, you know, a, a flat fee to kind of do it just because there's so much involved. But in other cases, I'm just not worried about it. I just It's like, yeah, I'm going to put more time in up front. But that's kind of how I shifted part of my sales cycle as well. The paradigm shift, I think, for most people – is that it feels super risky because they feel like billing by the hour gives them a stick to hit the client with to kind of keep the scope where they thought it should be. You know, like, well, because the, the first question, one of the first questions I always get from hourly people is, well, how do you prevent scope creep? And sort of facetiously, I say, well, just charge a ton of money and, you know, it, you won't care if it creeps all over all over the world and back because it's still a great deal for you. And if they're happy with the project, then then it doesn't matter. And 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 that is kind of I mean I intend to say that to get a laugh, but it's kind of true. I mean, people are I think hourly hourly folks are assuming 
that the switch is merely giving a fixed quote instead of an estimate. So if they would have estimated something at, you know, 10 hours at $100 an hour, you know, for $1,000, they say, okay, my quote is going to be $1,000. It's just not that simple. You don't, right. just, you don't just switch it that way. Right. It's a whole thinking about it from an hourly standpoint is completely beside the point. It has nothing to do with what the customer needs you to do. So that's the shift. And it, it feels very risky because you're putting you're taking a lot more risk on. And and Kirk, Kirk you can feel it, right? <laughs> well, uh, to me, it boils down to that old saying, you know, from high school athletics, right? No pain, no gain, no risk, no reward. There are greater risks with value-based billing, but there are also greater rewards. I think it serves as a qualifier. I mean, there's some customers who, from the first conversation, I know it's no longer a fit. Whereas old hourly, I might have said, you know what, I'm going to do this. Now I'm just like, it's not going to work. You know, and so now I'm able to politely say, you know what, um, let me recommend somebody else who I think could help you with this. Um, it really is a qualifier in the sales process, but I'm, I'm, I'm going on faith here, but I'm, but I'm fairly convinced just based on reading Weiss, talking with Jonathan. Actually, the interesting thing is now that I've kind of let it be known publicly that, yeah, I'm coming out value-based, I'm finding out about other people in the FileMaker community that are doing this, and I'm getting a dialogue with them. So I'm learning and growing, um, and it's causing me to do business better. It just is. It's shifting my focus. It's that whole you know, ROI. Well, right there is the whole point that we that I really wanted to get together to do this podcast because I also think well even even regardless of whether people we're, we're not really trying to to say hey all of you guys listening should be doing value based billing what we're trying to do is at least from my perspective is think about these things in a different way think about that there are other paradigms evaluate your own business evaluate your own methods of doing things and see if you can come up with something different and unique. And this is such a great example of it because it's such a, where it's applied well, it's such a win-win for both the consultant and the client. That's what I love most about it. Mm. Yeah, Kirk actually just brought up a, a, one of the things that kills me about hourly is that it allows clients and consultants to get into a relationship that's not a good one. Right. It's really awful. You know, a customer will call you up and they won't, you know, they'll, they waited too long to call you and they, their boss is breathing down their neck and they just need to get the project started and we don't have time to talk about it. You know, what's your hourly rate? Can't you just start working? And, um, we'll, you know, it, it's, I've seen it happen plenty of times. All of a sudden, you, you know, you build out three weeks worth of hours and the customer hasn't even, is basically just jerking you around with, you know, putting out fires and little stuff. And, and eventually that's going to turn into dissatisfaction on their part because they never had a goal in the first place. So, of course, the money that they're paying to you is going to start to seem like they're going to start to resent it. We're paying them all this money to do what? You know, you haven't done anything really. really. You know, you haven't achieved any goals yet. I don't know. It's, it's tough to talk about in the abstract. It's much more obvious when you take an actual project and you break it down and you say, well, look, right, you know, I can, when I'm working with someone directly, can sort of go through an example and I'll just point to like, look, you went off the rails right there. And they'll and they'll see it. Those that you know, it's not like a it's not like they're blind to it. Cool. We've yeah. been talking for a while about this. We should pick it up again in another podcast. Is there anything you guys want to add? I'll put in a plug for POE, doing a session at POE on this and would love to have people come join us. I know that there's going to be at least a couple other people from the community that are going to be there that have been doing value-based. One of them has been doing it for 10 years. So um, I know 
uh, would let, hopefully uh, Jonathan will be able to join us at the next POE. We'll that's, miss you at this uh, one, that's for sure. That's Pause on Air, January 21st and 22nd here in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, changing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> well, great talking to you guys. Same here. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt.